0: Hebrews 12, Sin and Judgment. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving Against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, That no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected." For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, Yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire." Amen. The Apostle, in his discussion of sin and judgment, he mentions sin in verses 1 to 17. How God treats sin, that's in verses 1 to 17. And the fact that we should understand God's approach, God's perspective on it, that is revealed in the last half of the chapter in 18 to 29. In 18 to 29, if we understand, if we know what God thinks about sin, then we should also know how seriously God treats it. When we have the true knowledge of what sin is, whether we respond to it as believers or we respond to it as unbelievers, whatever the case may be, we must understand. That God is a God of judgment. He will judge our sins. And if we are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, then there is no hope in the life to come. God is a consuming fire. And being a consuming fire, He is worse than the fire that was evident on Mount Sinai. That is the way the Apostle approaches the subject. To exhort us, admonish us, and encourage us to understand correctly sin and the consequence of sin, the judgment of God. This is his approach. Now, let's back up and say why it is we are studying this subject. We are studying this subject because most people... In most places, in, even within Christianity, in most churches, most denominations, most, 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 people worship a false god. They worship an idol. Their god does not speak about sin, does not speak of it as often as it should be mentioned. Their god does not specify sin what is sin, what is not sin. Their God does not judge with His furious wrath unrepentant sinners. Their God does not have any wrath. He only has love and love for everyone equally. That is an idol. And if we worship an idol, a false god, then we are breaking the greatest commandment, and then how it is applied in this context in terms of breaking the first and second and third and fourth commandments of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments address our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, if we conceive of God in the wrong way, we have a different God. Secondly, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. The idols of the world are meant to cater to the carnal desires of the men of the world. Idols don't confront the people, the worshippers' sins. Idols are there to endorse and bless their sins, to give them what they want. Number three, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. People use the name of Christ. They say God. They say Trinity. They say Father in their prayers. They say these words. They say they believe in the Holy Spirit. They use the word gospel. They say salvation. They say Jesus died for me. They say these words, but they use these words in vain because they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it the words that they use, the way the Bible explains. Therefore, they're using the name of Jesus in vain. And it says, the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And then when they gather to worship, that's the fourth commandment, when they gather to worship, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When they gather If their conception of God is false, if they're worshiping an idol and they're using the name of the Lord in vain, then their group worship, their church worship, their gatherings are also in violation of the fourth commandment because they're not truly worshiping the way God wants them to worship when they gather for worship. So they break the fourth commandment. And all of this is... Encapsulated in one commandment Deuteronomy 6 4 and 5, which is repeated in Mark 12 28 to 34. Deuteronomy 6 4 and 5, Mark 12 28 to 34, where Jesus in the book of Mark calls Deuteronomy 6 the greatest, the first and foremost commandment or the greatest commandment. And what is it? You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If we break the four of the Ten Commandments in any way, then we are not loving God as He wants us to love Him. This is why this series on sin and judgment is so crucial. Because God presents Himself more often than people admit. As a God... Who will inflict his wrath against unrepentant sinners? Both Christians and non Christians, believers and unbelievers. This is the way the Bible teaches the true nature of God and the true understanding of the gospel of Christ. Another clarification why? Is it necessary to give so much attention to the Word of God, to the Holy Bible? Why is it necessary for the church to do so? Because it is our life. It's not an idle word. It is our life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. It is our life. Philippians 2, 16. It's called the Word of God. Life, It is our life. We have no eternal life. We have no knowledge of eternal life and what God expects of us, who He is, what He says about us, and what He expects of us. We have no true knowledge of it unless we study the Holy Scriptures. That is the only way we can know. We cannot know by stargazing. We cannot know by examining a leaf under um, a microscope. We cannot know by any other means what God has said about the true way of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is the only way, not even in other religious books. Not in the religious books of any religion. It is only through the Bible. Romans 10:17 So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the word of Christ. There is no true faith unless we know what the word of Christ says. As to our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification, what we are expected to know in this world, how to prepare for the world to come, anything and everything, it's only by the word of Christ, that we can have true faith in knowing and believing and pursuing what we ought. This is why when a church gathers, the main issue or the main practice is not singing, is not talking to each other, is not any other aspect of what people do when they gather together. These things have a place, but central must be the Word of Christ. We must gather with a genuine interest in the Word of Christ. That is what we must know. We must master and then teach others to know and others to master because they cannot have true faith unless they know the Word of Christ, which is also called the Word of Faith, Romans 10, 1 to 17. It's called the Word of Faith and the Word of Christ. Only by the Word. Therefore, let's go to the Word and see what the Apostle says on this subject in our chapter. In verses 1 to 3, he uses Jesus our Lord as the prime and perfect example of one who endured, who resisted temptation And he did so to his death. He is the prime and perfect example of godliness, righteousness, the pursuit of doing the will of the Father, and successfully doing it and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is also our hope. This is why the Apostle presents Jesus here. Having presented many of the Christians of the Old Testament in chapter 11, he now says where our focal point should be. Our emphasis should be Christ himself. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The great cloud of witnesses... They are the saints he mentioned, and he could not mention. He said time would fail him if he starts to mention and explain about others. In chapter 11, these are the great cloud of witnesses who testified to faithfulness to Christ, who endured until the end, and they are recorded in Scripture to testify to us about what we should do we should follow their example. And what did they do? Remember in verse 1 he said, let us also, also, in addition to the hall of faith in chapter 11, the many mentions there, we are also called to do like they did. Also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily Entangles us. To lay aside is the biblical analogy of having filthy garments, removing them, and then putting on clean garments. The filthy garments of sin, these we should lay aside. Here they are called encumbrances, hindrances, obstacles to us pursuing the righteousness of Christ. We need to lay them aside. And even the sin which so easily entangles us. For some of us, one sin easily entangles. To another, another sin easily entangles. Whatever the sin might be, we should identify what they are and take special precautions, special steps to overcome them because they easily entangle us. If they easily entangle us, we should always be mindful and take steps to avoid those temptations. Further, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race is not a short dash. The race is not just 10 yards, or 100 yards. This race is a very long race. That's why, he says, run that race with endurance. This takes practice in many ways, training in many ways, to be able to start this race and then to finish that race. One cannot run a marathon Just like that, he needs to practice, and then he is able to run the marathon. And the Christian life is not a dash, a short dash. It is a marathon. It has length and needs endurance, perseverance, training, until we reach the end. And the end is seeing Christ face to face. Whether by our death or His return, we shall one day see Him face to face. That is when our race ends, not before. Which means we still have sin within us, contrary to the free will theology that teaches perfectionism, sinless perfection. Nobody, upon conversion or any point after conversion, arrives at Sinlessness, it's impossible and it is a heresy. He has not understood the gospel correctly if he believes that. Here he tells us that we're supposed to be constantly fighting sin with endurance as Jesus did. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Our eyes need to be fixed on him. What did did he do? What did he say? What would he expect of us? There used to be a wristband. What would Jesus do, right? Why is it that nobody's asking that question these days and nobody's going to the Bible to see what Jesus said about everything? Nobody's doing that these days. Very, very few people are doing that. But if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, we need to be reading the Bible daily. Read from Genesis to Revelation. Have a regular habit of it. Not just the sweet parts of Scripture, but also the salty parts, the sour parts of Scripture. We also must read and know and assimilate into our theology and into our practice. It must be that way. That's the way we fix our eyes on Jesus, because Jesus is in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He is everywhere. The purpose of God was to explain Jesus through the Word of God. That's the only way of true knowledge. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He not only gives us faith at the beginning, he ensures that our faith remains until the end. He is the granter of faith. He's the giver of faith. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work will perfect the good work until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.29, also, 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It is granted to believe, granted to suffer, which means it's a gift to believe and a gift to suffer. That's why there should be no moaning and groaning, whining and complaining about suffering, because suffering is a gift of God. According to Philippians 1:29. Jesus knew this and he knew the outcome after suffering. Verse 2. It says, "Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew the joy before Him. For Him, He would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We shall also reign and rule with Him. If we're going to reign and rule with Him, then that's what awaits us too. The crown of righteousness awaits us. This is what awaits us. Just as Jesus kept that before Him, We should do so. He endured the cross thereby. He also despised the shame thereby. How? Because He knew that beyond the cross, beyond the shame, was glory. Glory with the Father. Which glory He intends to share with us. John 17. That they may have the glory with me as I did with you before the foundation of the world. This same glory is intended for us. In heaven, if Jesus, who was perfect and did not deserve any ridicule, any persecution, any suffering, nothing, because he never sinned, if he endured that, then all the more we should, because we have many, many sins to purge. And the age of purgation is now, not in the life to come, contrary to Roman Catholics. There is no place designated for us to be purged from our sins in purgatory, as Roman Catholics say. No, the time to be purged of sin is now. As he said, to lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now is the time to do it. Then is the time to enjoy glory. The glory will be forever. Resisting sin now, even if it means being persecuted to death instead of denying Christ, that would be a sin. If it means dying for Christ now, then that's what we should do knowing what awaits us, just as Jesus did. Did he not say, take up your cross daily? Luke 9, 23. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. And then we might complain. We might say, well, He didn't have to suffer what I have to suffer. That argument is anticipated in verse 3. Verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Our complaint would be, I'm tired. I just want to live in some remote place. I don't want any people around me. And I don't want to have to deal with people. I don't want to go to church. I don't want conflict in church. I'm going to grow weary. I'm not going to deal with any of that. Just leave me alone and let me go live alone. (coughs) People who think that way are growing weary and losing heart. But they're thinking that way sinfully. And also, they don't realize that they'll become insane if they don't have anybody to talk to. They're going to become insane. They're going to look at the trees. They're going to become insane. The acorns are going to fall on their head and they're not going to be enlightened. They're going to become madmen. You have to have proper interaction, sane, calm, peaceful interaction with the people of God to show that you love God and God edifies us that way. Otherwise, there's no edification. Jesus didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He endured such hostility by sinners against himself. He didn't deserve anything. And yet, he had intense hostility against him by these unrepentant sinners. At least most of them were. A few repented later. But most of them were unrepentant and they only had murderous, violent thoughts and intentions with Christ. If it happened to Christ, will it not happen to us? John 15, 18 to 27. The slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John fifteen, eighteen, And following. So don't lose heart. If we belong to Christ, this is the way it must be. Otherwise, there is no glorification. If we don't understand this, don't want it, we despise it. <clears throat> we want to spit it out of our mouth. It says this. Romans 8:16 and 17. Romans 8:16 The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8, 16 and 17. We are children of God. That is the great honor. We are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, of eternal life, and reigning and ruling with Him for all eternity. But what must happen first if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him? Suffering first, glorification second. This is the true Christian life. Then, verses 4-4, verses 4 to 13 he's exhorting the believers to remove reject despise our residual sins from our day to day life that's what he's doing in verses 4 to 13 even up to verse 14 but In 15 to 17, he contrasts the way the true believer approaches sin with the way a false believer approaches sin. Esau. There is a difference. The true believer, 12.4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Here again. Why are we complaining when the people call us names, when they're not our friends anymore? Why are we complaining when we lose our jobs? Why do we complain? We have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin, so there's no need to complain. Further, we, verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. This is taken. this quote is taken from Proverbs three, eleven to twelve, Proverbs three, eleven to twelve, and Job five: seventeen, Job five: seventeen. Since he doesn't introduce it, he's taking it from one of these two places. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and Job 5, 17. Just as in the Old Testament, now also here in the New Testament, we are addressed as sons, and we should not forget this exhortation that being sons of God, God will discipline us. Every natural son and father, they have this relationship where the Father is training the Son, training in life and training in different areas, but most importantly, training in spiritual matters. And when that happens, inevitably, the inward sin, the original sin within the Son, will rise up. It will rise up daily. It will rise up, and it needs to be Corrected. It needs to be disciplined. So when that discipline comes, and in this case, we're talking about the Lord in us. When that discipline comes, the good, loving, caring, mindful Father on earth will do like the Heavenly Father and discipline His Son. So when that discipline occurs, we should not regard it lightly. We should not be flipping about it and say, ha, wait until I'm old. He's going to see what I think of him. That attitude should not be there. That would be somebody regarding lightly the discipline of his earthly father. In the same way, how could we brazenly do that with God our Father? When he disciplines us, we should receive it. We should receive it with the proper attitude, and not faint. Verse 6 For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The love of the Lord causes him to discipline his sons. Every son that he receives, that he welcomes, that he comforts, is also the son he scourges. The verb to scourge. What does that mean? It's not the average verb used in this context. It's not verbal correction. It's not even uh, spanking. It's more serious than that. And it deals with a very serious blow to the body. So that the son knows the father means business. He's not joking around. He really wants the son to stop sinning in this way or that way. That's what God does to us. That's why whenever these trials, persecutions, sufferings are very intense, we may look at those intense ones from God, scourging us to help us and remind us that we still have many sins within us that must be overcome. The first one that should be overcome is the tendency to immediately complain and blame God and curse God, which Job never did. He even rebuked his wife in Job 2, 9 and 10 when she tempted him to do so. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Well, when God brings a severe test like he did to Job upon us, we should receive it like that. This is the Lord. Nothing's out of control. We will overcome. We must know his will, do his will, endure it, and then see what results. Verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Generally speaking, the natural father who is married to the mother of the son, when husband and wife have first married and then have born children, then those children are the legitimate children. When the parents are unmarried and the woman becomes pregnant, then the children are called, according to Scripture and history and law, they are called illegitimate children because they are outside of the law of marriage. That's why illegitimate. Usually, typically speaking, illegitimate children do not receive the discipline, love, and attention from the father as the legitimate children do. Legitimate children typically receive better discipline than illegitimate children. Now, that's... phenomenon of life that's evident in most circumstances. But in the Bible, it's saying that this is the very case. The Bible, God is saying that that is the case. This is the way it works in life. The natural father who has married the mother of the son, he is very concerned to love and discipline his children. But if nothing's happening, there's no persecution, there's no suffering, everything is fine. Health and wealth are in abundance and there are no troubles that are testing our faith. Then, he says, we would be illegitimate children because our Heavenly Father is not bringing... Discipline into our life. Verse 9 Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The earthly fathers who disciplined us, we respected them. We recognized later in life that what they did, what they taught us, what they said was a dangerous, sinful practice You ought never to say that, never to do that, never to indulge with that practice again. And we received a severe discipline that made us stop at that young age. Later in life, we would say, I really appreciate my father. He put the fear of God in me on this sin. And I'm so thankful I never repeated that sin. That's the kind of respect. Then, if we do that with earthly fathers, he says, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? We're not talking about an earthly father who is weak and finite. We're talking about our heavenly father who is strong and infinite. And he has all the wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Nothing is out of his control. If he brings troubles into our life to discipline us then we should receive them gladly through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god acts 14:22 acts 14:20 2. Also, Romans 5, Romans 5, 1-5, on the proper, joyful attitude toward our Heavenly Father. Romans 5, 1-5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 3 says, we also exult in our tribulations. To exult, E-X-U-L-T. Exult means to have Intense joy. Intense joy in the midst of tribulations. Not intense anxiety, but intense joy. We exult in our tribulations. This is coming from the Father in heaven. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. To the extent that our earthly fathers have holiness, whether we call it civil righteousness or true Christological righteousness by faith in Christ, if our earthly father has aspects or elements of righteousness, Does not our Heavenly Father have the superior righteousness? And He wants us to share His holiness, it says. That we may share His holiness. That is much better, Uh, an eternal goal that our Heavenly Father has for us. Verse 11 For the moment, it's not joyful. Well, that's if the flesh rises up and starts to complain. For the moment, it's not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. At the moment, it brings sorrow, it brings distress, it brings confusion, it brings depression, discouragement. But when we seek to overcome what has overwhelmed us by being trained by it, then it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Is that not what we want? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. True righteousness has peace. Internal peace that no one can take away and no one, an unbeliever, can understand. But we will have that when we properly approach any and every affliction that comes our way. 12 and 13, he uses the analogy of hands and knees and feet, also limbs, in order to teach us that what do we do when we have a weak bodily part? Do we not strengthen it so that we can be as equal as possible with both hands or both feet, whatever is weak? We seek to remedy that weakness the best that we can. That's the way we should do it with our spiritual life. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak. How? Exercise, training, discipline. Exercise. Strengthen the hands that are weak. The knees that are feeble. It's not good to have such feeble knees that you are unable to walk anywhere. If that's the case, we must do what's necessary to rectify that. Same with the spiritual life. Wherever there are gaps, wherever there are holes, wherever there are weaknesses, feebleness, overcome them. Don't allow for mediocrity, lethargy, to reign. But instead, do the opposite. Be diligent. Identify and pursue what's necessary. Thirteen, make straight paths for your feet. In other words, don't walk on crooked paths, Don't go on the byways when you should be on the highway of holiness, Isaiah 35, 8. We should be, as Isaiah says, on the highway of holiness, 35, 8. Not on byways, not in alleys, not taking long breaks on the side of the road. We should be on the straight path with our feet. The same so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The lame limb should not remain lame. We want it to be strong, we want it to be healed. So do what's necessary. Don't settle for less. Overcome. Laziness with a determination with the resolve to do the will of God. This is for the true believer as he progresses in his Christian life, daily overcoming sin, gradually and progressively until he meets Christ. Only then will perfection take place when he meets Christ. But meantime, pursue this perfection. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. How important is this? How important is this view of the Christian life? Verse 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see The Lord. Pursue peace with all. Matthew 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Making peace in the biblical way, not peace at all costs, as a lot of people practice. That's not what the Bible means but pursuing peace in the biblical way. The apostle Paul says in Romans 12, Romans 12:18. 12, Romans 12:18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible means that sometimes it's not possible. Why? Because the other party may not want peace. The other party may stop communicating with you. The other party might disappear. The other party might start to rail, rant and rave and foam at the mouth against you and want nothing to do with you anymore. The other party may be unforgiving. That's why he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. As much as it depends on us, whatever the scripture says is our obligation to pursue peace, that's what we must do. Nothing more and nothing less. Whatever the scripture says. On the straight path. This is the peace that he means here in Hebrews 12, 14. And again, he doesn't mean peace at all Costs. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 10 34 to 39 that he did not come to bring peace on the earth? This is an enigma to many people. It confuses them because they've only heard their whole life that Christ came into the world to deliver peace. Well, peace in a particular way, in certain context but not peace in every circumstance in every scenario or in every relationship he did not come to do that he says it explicitly in Matthew 10:34 to 39 Matthew 10:34 do not think that i came to bring peace on the earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Sanctification. Sanctification is a synonym of holiness, godliness. That is, we must be constantly and daily setting apart our desires in order to pursue that which is the will of God. The one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 He who has, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3.3 3. We, If we're going to see Christ who is pure, we must be seeking for purification now. If we despise purification now, what makes us think we will enjoy purification later. We must enjoy it now. Purification, holiness, or sanctification. Why? It's very significant. If we do not pursue peace with all in the biblical way, and if we do not pursue sanctification in the biblical way, we will not see the Lord, meaning the favor of the Lord. We will not see His brilliant face gleaming at us but we're going to see his austere angry face about to condemn us if there's no sanctification then the example Esau why do we say Esau fits in the category of a false brother he's more in the category of a false brother than a complete stranger and a foreigner who was raised in idolatry Esau is not like Nebuchadnezzar. Esau is not like Cyrus. Esau is not like Artaxerxes or any other ancient king who was raised in idolatry. Esau was raised in the household of Isaac and Rebekah. And Rebekah bore twins, Genesis 25. She bore twins, Esau the firstborn, Jacob the secondborn. God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. This means that Esau was raised in a godly household by Isaac and Rebekah, who knew the moment he was in the womb that he was reprobate, because God told them, Genesis 25-23, God told Rebekah about Esau being reprobate, Genesis 25-23, which is repeated in Malachi 1, 1-5. Malachi 1 one to5 and Romans 9, Romans 9:11 to 13. If this is the case that Esau was raised in a godly household, what did he do? He rejected the word of Christ preached by Isaac and Rebekah to him. How did this happen? Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Coming short of the grace of God means the grace of God was preached to Esau, but he never grasped it. He never attained it. He never wanted it. He despised the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. What else did Esau have? He had a root of bitterness a poisonous root, growing up, welling up within him, causing trouble in his own life and defiling him inside and outside. He was a defiled man. The inner man and the outer man completely defiled. How so? 16. He was immoral and godless. Immoral and godless. One example given He sold his own birthright for a single meal. When we read Genesis chapter 25 on this, when we read the narrative, until we get to the last verse of chapter 25, we might think, well, what's the big deal? He just sold his birthright. He he says, I'm famished. I'm I'm about to die. And I need to eat something. Jacob, what are you making? So Jacob gives him some of the, the lentil, stew or soup to him and he eats it and then he sells the birthright because of that. If we just read it superficially, we think there's nothing, no big deal about that. There's nothing wrong with that. What's the big deal? Birthright, it's not a big deal. We're not involved. We don't care about earthly things. But it was a big deal because Moses says at the end of that narrative, Thus, Esau despised his birthright. And what it what it really is is what it represented. He despised the spiritual implications of it. He despised it all. That's why he is immoral and godless. One reason why. He is immoral and godless. Then 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He sought for the blessing. This is recorded in Genesis 27. He sought for the blessing with tears, but he didn't repent. He didn't want to repent of his sins, so he wanted blessings without repentance. That's what everybody wants. That's how churches become mega churches. That's how pastors avoid preaching against sin. They don't preach against sin because they want everybody listening, everybody there to stay there as long as possible, as long as he's alive. So that the money keeps coming in. That's what they want. They won't properly preach against sin and the righteous consequences of sin. The judgment of God. Esau whined about it. He cried about it. But Esau did not repent about it. This often happens with false brethren. The character of God is revealed in 18 to 29. 18 to 29. In 18 to 21, he recaps for us what happened at Mount Sinai. This would be Exodus 19, verse 1 to 20, 21. Exodus 19, verse 1 and 20, 21. Basically, most of chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Exodus. That's what he's recapping. What happened at Sinai when the law was delivered to Moses for the people of Israel? What happened? There was a mountain that should not be touched, blazing fire, verse 18, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of trumpet, sound of words, words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. This is likely thunderous words, like Ezekiel chapter 1. When Ezekiel heard the words of God, it was like the voice of many waters and like the sound of thunder which is scary, it's ominous. That's the way God spoke. The people heard it and they begged that no more be done, no more be heard. They could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Sometimes beasts, the domestic animals that they were transporting through the wilderness, whatever animals they had, sometimes they go astray. But it's a domestic animal. It's not a wild animal, it's a domestic one. But when a domestic animal goes astray, at the time, if it were to touch the mountain, even that animal was supposed to be stoned to death. Why? The holiness of God. Verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Was that a sinful statement? That's Deuteronomy 9.19. Was that a sinful statement from Deuteronomy 9.19? Verse 21, I am full of fear and trembling. No, Moses is telling us the proper reaction to seeing, witnessing, understanding the holiness of God. The righteous prophet of God was full of fear and trembling when God was revealed to him and the people. We should be like that too, according to this passage. Did he not say at the end, for our God is a consuming fire? He didn't say our God is a doll, is a stuffed animal, a teddy bear. He said our God is a consuming fire. That's also meant to cause fear and trembling within us. Psalm 119, 120. Psalm 119, 120. <clears throat> My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. 119, 120. Even in the New Testament, such as our passage, we are taught to have this fear and trembling before God. Now, if the people did it because of the, the theophany, the, the appearance of God at Sinai. And he wanted to fix in the minds of the people how holy he was and is. If that was a good thing that resulted, then shouldn't that be a good thing for us? Yes. Then, in 22 to 29, he turns his attention to a heavenly sight, to a heavenly vision. To consider the things of heaven. Not Sinai on the earth, but Zion in heaven. Verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion. When we see the but, we shouldn't think but means, Oh, God has mitigated His anger. God has alleviated His wrath. God is now gracious and compassionate. That's not what he means by but. By but he means it was bad enough at Sinai. It's even worse if you consider the eternal implications. If you consider the eternal implications of the righteousness, holiness, wrath of God, all the more we should have this kind of fear and trembling. Because we're considering Mount Zion, 22, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels. Imagine if we saw myriads of angels. We wouldn't be cozy and comfortable. We would be full of fear and trembling. The myriads of angels. The general assembly and church of the firstborn we would who are enrolled in heaven we would see the saints in glory in addition to all the angels and to god we would be seeing god in a limited sense but we would be seeing god the judge of all he says he's the judge of all he didn't say the father of all at this point he says the judge of all not father in terms of a caring father who puts his children on the lap and feeds them. He's not talking about the father in that way. Earlier he talked about the father in terms of being a teacher, a trainer, and a judge. And here he's speaking of God as the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We would see righteousness. 100%. We would see Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant which is better than the Old Covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke and speaks, but the blood of Jesus is superior to the blood of Abel, Abel though righteous, and a righteous prophet, and a martyred prophet, yet Jesus was 100% perfect. He was and is the Son of God and Son of Man. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins so that we not experience the penalty for our sins. 25, he further makes this contrast. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. The man who warned on earth was Moses, and they didn't escape. But the man who warns us, he came from heaven. He descended from heaven was on the earth for a time, accomplished His work on the cross and resurrection, ascended into heaven. He belongs in heaven. He always belonged to heaven. He's speaking to us, and He came from heaven to warn us. Therefore, all the more, pay attention to what He says about sin and judgment. 26 to 27. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The things that cannot be shaken entail the kingdom of God. Whatever is encompassing the kingdom of God cannot be shaken, will last forever. He's going to get rid of everything that's temporal and created so that we're only experiencing the eternal forever and ever. If He did it then to shake up things, He's shaking up things again so that those who are in the eternal kingdom may enjoy it. 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's our eternal kingdom, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our unshakable kingdom, no man can upset, no man can break it, no man can violate it, no man can bring violence to it, to destroy it. Let us show gratitude. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve this, so always be grateful. In everything give thanks; rejoice always; pray without ceasing; in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5:16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5:16 to 18. Let us show gratitude. What we have, we don't deserve. Therefore, be grateful. By which we may, then, when we are grateful, that's when we offer to God true worship with reverence and awe. Not with silliness, not with entertainment, not with comfortable Christianity, but with reverence, and awe. That's what God requires of us. Why? He says why, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. This is taken from Deuteronomy 4, 24. Deuteronomy 4, 24. God called <coughs> himself, or and Moses wrote, Our God is a consuming fire. Here too, our God is a consuming fire. This is what God chooses to explain who He is. A consuming fire. Consuming what? Burning up the weak, worthless elements. It's as though He's burning up gold and silver. And whatever is impure in the gold and silver, that dross, it will be removed, and the smith will only have the gold and the silver he wants after it has gone through intense fire. But if the smith uses wood to ignite the fire and keep the fire, what happens to the wood? The stubble, it burns up. Who or what is that? Well, in our life, that would be sin, and it would also be all unrepentant sinners who will be thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, the lake of fire. Our God will consume them and destroy them in fire. Who is our God? What do we think of him? And do we live accordingly? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.